This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women and addiction. Welcome back to Worth Recovery, a podcast featuring women and sex addiction. My name is Amy. I'm your host here and the founder of Worth Recovery. I'm also a recovering sex addict, and I have been sober since December 2nd of 2012. So I'm excited to start today with episode 58. This is a continuation of our interview with Stacy Sprout. The book that Stacy wrote is called Naked in Public, and it's a memoir about her journey in sex addiction and other temporary insanities, she calls them. We had such a great time connecting, and I'm really, really just excited to, to excited to know her and to bring this interview to all of you because she has so much to offer us as women in sex addiction, and I'm just so grateful for her courage and her willingness to spend some time with us. We're just going to jump right back into our interview. We had just left off talking about her 20s. I asked the question, what what was one of the hardest things about writing this book? And she talked about kind of the shame that she felt in her 20s. And we're going to pick up there and talk a little bit more about the content of the book in this episode. So let's just jump right in. Talking about your 20s, one mm-hmm. of the quotes from your book um, that was really impactful for me uh, is this one. It's from the first part of your book, just kind of before you got into recovery. Mm-hmm. It says, at 21 years old, I didn't grasp the possibility that my food binges alcohol abuse, compulsive shopping, and deceptive promiscuity might qualify as my very own addictive cocktail, my chemical behavioral version of Prozac. And I think what really rang true for me in that is, had I noticed that early on, my, I, don't, I wouldn't say that my behavior, my sexual behavior in my early 20s would have qualified as an addiction. Mm-hmm. But had I put that together with all the other behaviors I was doing, mm-hmm. I would definitely say I had some compulsivity problems for sure mm-hmm. and would have realized that I was medicating, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. medicating in so mm-hmm. many ways. And mm-hmm. that's a question that I get a lot from listeners mm-hmm. is, you know, maybe my sexual behavior is a problem. Maybe not though. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of the norm from what you see in the media, mm-hmm. like, you know, how, but they know something's wrong. They know something's wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Was this a reflection after the fact? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> when you were 20, you weren't able to put all that together. No way. Yeah. What helped you to finally see that? Well, in some ways, the concept of multiple addictions or what Carnes calls addiction interaction mm-hmm. is still very new. So my friends and I in long-term recovery, I mean, relatively long-term, there's people a lot longer than 15 years, six, right. you know, but, but in, let's say, 10 years of recovery or more, most of us are working multiple programs. <laughs> like, we're, we're recognizing that there's overlap in these things we do to medicate. And to me, I love what you said about, you know, they knew there was something wrong and they knew they were medicating. Because there's so much stigma about addiction. Who wants to be an addict? Who wants to be a sex addict, you know? Mm-hmm. Let alone, you know, having multiple addictions. It's like people kind of tongue-in-cheek call it double winners, triple winners in, in recovery rooms. But who wants to admit that? Uh, but most people can say, I feel like there's something wrong and I may be medicating. So I, I didn't really start to comprehend that 
until I had started getting in recovery and I started reading recovery books. And I read a book called, I think it's called When Society Was an Addict by Ann Wilson Schaaf. When Society Was an Addict talks about the addictive life process. And that, when I heard those words, the addictive life process, I had an aha moment. Okay, I think I got one of those. And because sex recovery was not my first 12-step program, it was codependency recovery, but it only emerged after doing, as I wrote about, doing some work in my codependency that I realized I had no clue that sex was a problem at all. And that was by design. I had suppressed my awareness of the pain of that because it was so painful I didn't know how to make sense of it. I grew up in a family where you couldn't talk about sex and I had been sexually abused. Now, not everyone in sexual recovery has been overtly sexually abused like I was, but those were all reasons that I didn't want to think about sex. I wasn't used to thinking about it. It was, you know, you don't do that. And, but things just happen to happen, especially when you're drunk or, you know, I mean, that was my worldview. So when I got into recovery for codependency and that led me to recovery for sexuality, then I read this book called uh, When Society Was an Addict and learned about the addictive life process. And, but it really wasn't until years later when I got my training as a certified sex addiction therapist that I started to see how the interactions really is, a, it's, it is a medicating neurobiological process. It, it, you know, the process of PTSD where we, we, we have trauma and then the trauma intrudes upon our awareness trying to reintegrate, but we can't reintegrate it, we don't know how, so it becomes this horrible intrusion and then we try to numb that out. You know, so then there's this elevated adrenaline, and then we try to numb it, and elevation and numbing, elevation, numbing, and that cycle of the adrenalized experience up, and then the down, the downer, you know, that that is a key, for me, foundational part of the addictive life process. I get high, and then I got to numb out, uh, or I numb out so I don't get too high, and the substances themselves, whether it's a food binge that I'm getting really adrenalized about, or the stupor after I've had the binge, or the sexual experience that I'm high on, or the fantasies I'm high on, or the crash into shame afterward, you know, this is that process. And so I would say I've been learning about it over time, but it was definitely the narrator who went back and wrote that about my 20-something who was just trying to survive. Yeah. So we've talked about two of your kind of biggest aha moments mm-hmm. when you were writing and some mm-hmm. of the surprises that you had as you went through. Mm-hmm. What was what was one of the hardest pieces to write? You're you're incredibly vulnerable in this book mm-hmm. in talking about so many different things. What was one of the hardest pieces for you to write about? Well, there was two and I would say uh, I know they were the hardest for me to write because I wrote them last. Mm-hmm. I put them off as long as I possibly could <laughs> and it's ironic because I might have thought that the hardest things to write were the most painful or the most shameful, which is the two surprises, you know, my 20s and then just the, the, the kind of shame pieces I carried throughout the sto- whole story. But those were not the hardest to write. So this is where it gets into, is it hard from an emotional perspective or hard from a writer, a writer perspective and maybe some of both or spiritual? So the second to last hardest part to write was my near-death experience. And I think it, it was interesting because my writing coach, I, I wrote a, a small chapter on that in the original draft. And my writing coach said, you totally skimmed over this. You have to tell us what happened. You have to go into this in more detail. And I said, I, I can't. I don't really remember it. 
Like it's not really clear to me what happened. I feel kind of vague about it. And I just had this aversion to writing more about it. And so I didn't listen to him. I just blew by his suggestion and I <laughs> finished my draft and I went on and it got to my betas. Uh-huh. And so my husband, as one of my early readers of that later draft, said, you have to write more about your near-death experience. You just skimmed <laughs> over. He's exactly what the writing coach said. So I know enough if I'm hearing the same thing from more than one person, I have to listen. And so I tried to write more on it and I couldn't. It wouldn't come out. I was totally blocked. And so then I put it off until much later in the writing process, I was in the editing process, and I went on my honeymoon. And I I spoke about this a little bit on the video, but when I went on my honeymoon, I had a really lovely experience. It's it's an incredibly inspired experience on all levels, mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, sexual. It was a really powerful time. And I felt so elevated kind of in all of those areas. I was in just a lot of joy. And so, I, and I was in Maui. So I, I would wake up just out of excitement at like 3 a.m. and it was dark out and my husband would be sleeping. And so I had my laptop next to my bed. And it was happening every night. And so I would take my laptop and I would pad down and bare feet to the beach because we were staying by the beach. And I would open my little glowing screen and I'd hear the shore, but I couldn't really see. And so that was this magical place where I was able to write about my near-death experience. And it just poured out. It was like, this is what happened. And it was really fascinating. Some people talk about the concept of like spiritually inspired writing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what happened because when I went back and read that, even the language was a little different than how I normally, it was a little, it was just fascinating. So I had to kind of make it go along with my voice in the book just because it's all me writing it. But sometimes, you know, one day I write this way, another day I write that way. It's like that. But, um, but that was, it was hard to write because I wasn't ready. I wasn't at that level kind of it's hard to describe, but energetically where I could transmit the actual experience into words that could be understood in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how well it was pulled off. I've kind of checked with readers. Some people are really moved by that. Um, but that it, it just, I just had to be ready and in the right space at the right condition. And, and I did have grief after I wrote it. I had grief because there was almost like a, a, a revisiting that place when I wrote it again that made me sad to be in my human body again <laughs> because of the physical pain and suffering that takes yeah. place here on earth and, and around me. And uh, so even though I've had so many wonderful things happen in my recovery and in my life, and I'm very happy in my life today, it's still not easy to be in a physical body sometimes. And so remembering the bliss of that experience and then the contrast sometimes, um, I did have to grieve that and just acknowledge that, um, you know, there's so much mystery in this life, but some of it is being in a body and the power and bliss of that. And that's, you know, I think that's what I'm learning about here. So, so that was one. And then another one that was hard to write, maybe the hardest was the very last chapter with my husband. And really, yes, one of the hardest pieces. Okay. It's ironic because it wasn't hard, like emotionally hard, like it's so painful or shameful, but I just, I didn't have enough time from when it had happened to when I was trying to write about it. So one of the things that makes the writing work is I can find some perspective. 
And so for he and I, I mean, we're still, I mean, we've only been married almost three years. So it's still kind of new. Whereas a lot of the experience in the book, I'd had time to work on and heal and grow. And process. Process. And talked and, about. Yeah. And all that kind of stuff, like, right? oh, yeah. it's more seasoned, you know. <laughs> but the stuff with him was like, how do I write about this? So that was, I mean, that had to come last because it was most recent. So. Yeah. Yeah. And congratulations. Oh, thank you. You know, on being married and having... I mean, I loved reading that part, actually, Aww. just about your happy ending, you Aww. know, and finding someone who is so supportive and so perfect for your experiences and the things. And, and I loved your uh, dedication at the end to him, too, just in your thank yous. You wrote some really great things about your relationship with him. I was just really inspired mm-hmm. by that. I think as a recovering sex addict, like one of my greatest fears is will will that ever happen? Will I find mm. that relationship? I think mm. a lot of, I know, not I think, I know a lot of women struggle with that. They get into recovery and they think, well, okay, I, I just won't have sex again or mm. I, I just won't ever be in a relationship again, mm. you know, because I don't trust myself. I don't know all these different things, mm. you know, and I have watched a lot of women struggle with that. Mm. And so I was inspired by your happy ending mm. to have some hope that there, it can be, those types of relationships again thank you for sharing that yeah I hear that too from women who are hopeless that they might find that and that there might be something like that for them I had an opportunity to speak at a 12-step sexual recovery retreat and one of the questions was about soulmates do I believe in soulmates and and I I actually love that question Mm -hmm. and I know that's not the question you're asking but I love the hope that inspires that question. Like, mm-hmm. can I find someone really, 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 really special? Right. Like, connect yeah, really a super great. deep level? Is that possible for me? And I had an opportunity to speak with a group of women uh, in sexual recovery. And it was fascinating because when I was telling my story, I was also paying attention to how it was being received, kind of just in the moment about, are people listening? Are they bored? And when I look back on the talk, it was about an hour talk I gave in my story. There was two parts to the story that I felt like the whole room was like really listening. And one of them was when I was speaking about my husband and finding him and how we connected and being, you know, deciding to marry and marrying, that they were just really interested in that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other one was about my grandmother. And so just that talk always reminded me of like, well, what are women, who are women sex addicts as a population or sex and love addicts and what are they interested in? And, you know, I didn't want to end the book with my wedding and it's not like everything that's ever happened with my husband has been blissful. I mean, we've right, had no, to work. And, and you write that. It's okay. You're <laughs> oh, honest. Good, good. <laughs> you um, write that. Well, because I was afraid if I ended the book with that, that it would be giving out the message that you know, everyone has to get married to have a happy ending or something, which I don't believe. But I will say that a lot of the women that I talk to, they want a deep soul commitment. Uh, however they define that, they really want that. And so it was my sister who said, you know, Stacey, this is part of your happy ending. Put it in there. People need hope that if they happen to want that, that it's possible. You can go from this shame-based, promiscuous, you know, doing things against your values and against your healthy sexuality and then you can reclaim that, I would say reclaiming that innocence mm-hmm. of, you know, wow, I really want true love and can I have that? And am I capable of giving that to someone else? And and yes, you know, I really believe that for women. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I found so inspiring was the fact that you had gone through all of this dr- 
trauma and drama with your family, your mm -hmm. parents, your sister, mm -hmm. you know, other people. And then here you are at your wedding with your sister and her kids. And, you know, that you couldn't see for a while because mm -hmm. of, you know, your disclosure with her, right? Mm -hmm. And your parents that caused problems for you and fed part of your addiction and mm -hmm. had addictions themselves. And, mm -hmm. and here we all are at this beautiful, joyous, happy celebration. You know, and just that, that there is, I mean, there's hope in just that, you know, just mm. sure the relationship is fabulous. And, mm. and I agree with you. Many women want, that's what they want. Mm. They want that deep connection. But then also to have, be able, be able to enjoy that with your family mm. was inspiring to me. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for sharing that. That you'd be it able is, to work through that. It is healing for the whole family. It that It is about the whole family healing. Yeah. Uh, so thanks for that. I appreciate that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I know for me, I found out that my dad was a sex addict after he had passed away. Oh. And so reading about that portion of your story where you're able to, you know, kind of, first of all, verbalize and understand that your dad had some sexual issues, mm -hmm. whether that there was no overt abuse there, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There was no sexual abuse, but that there mm -hmm. were things that were said, mm -hmm. things that were talked about, actions, different behaviors that contributed mm -hmm. to your sexual uh, addiction, your sexual behavior, your understanding of sex, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So can you tell, talk to us a little bit about that? What was what was that like maybe growing up a little bit in that kind of environment? Mm -hmm. And then how were you able to finally verbalize and articulate? Well, it was very painful. It was really horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have, nor did my parents or their parents, anyone to come to them and say, I'm going to tell you about something and it's amazing and it's magical and it's called sex. It's called sexuality. And you have it. It's a gift you have. It's in your body. And it's a divine gift if people are into that concept. But it came with you as, as part of your creation. Um, and, and I'm going to talk to you about some of the beauty of that. I'm going to talk to you about some of the ugliness about that. And, and, what, and in the world, there's a real divide. Um, and there's a lot of pain that's connected to sexuality that gets perpetrated out there. I feel like what you just said needs to be scripted out for parents to be able to talk to their oh. children about it. Oh. I mean, just that, just that little approach right there. Anyway, mm, I wish, keep going. you know, yes. I wish it's a long for that. I could have had someone coming to me and telling me that. And so me starting to be like, Oh, okay. Starting to think about, but that's not what happened. So what happened was I received these this dual message, both were really ill, in my opinion, really unhealthy. And so one of the messages is sex is a sin, basically, except when you're married, which had no reality for me which as is a, a child. Asterisk with an afternote that in really small type that people don't really. Yeah, because yeah. when you're when you're <laughs> growing into you don't you don't talk about that a lot when they say sex is a sin. No, right. it wasn't like, it wasn't like sex is a sin, but at some point it'll be awesome and you're right, going to love right, it and your right. marriage is going to be so alive and you know, it's no, it was no. just like, don't do it, you know, <laughs> it's so, more like sex is a sin. And when you get married, you have to endure it. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the afterthought yeah. impression. There yeah. was never anything other than mostly the focus was on the sin of it. Mm -hmm and not to be promiscuous and you could be stoned, you know, throw, I mean, I grew up Catholic and, you know, so even the, you know, forgiveness or Jesus hanging out with your Magdalene, it, it was never, 
it was never explained in a meaningful way so that I could connect it to the fact that I was a young woman growing into a sexuality and I wasn't married. And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And I mean, even the, even the spiritual, like in, in graduate school, I study this concept of the triune, you know, the triune goddess and the feminine and maiden mother crone. And it's like, well, where's the woman in there? Like there's the maiden who hasn't had sex yet. And then there's the mother who has children. And then there's the crone, the aged woman. Where's the woman who doesn't have children and she has sex like yeah you know i mean where is that it, it's like vacant the the alive female embodied sexuality that is sacred like so anyway i didn't get that what i and i keep talking about the positive i think because i uh maybe i'm avoiding talking about the negative or the painful more you could read it in my book but no <laughs> but but because i so want to talk about that but but what i'll say is being exposed to images of women who were probably exploiting themselves and probably had been sexually exploited and that's why they were um, sharing their their nakedness you know pictures of themselves in sexualized poses um, that my father owned and my mother didn't like it was such a mind blow to me as a little girl I just couldn't comprehend it and you know in some ways and this is going to sound funny, I think I'm still trying to comprehend it. Like, what actually happened there? Like, who was that? You know, the the introduction of dis, disheartened images of women, there's no, you know, there's no heart there. In fact, a lot of times when I teach about pornography, the definition I use is pornography is sex without images or depictions of sex without love. Because it's like, where's the love there? You know, we, we're not supposed to have sex till you're married. And if you do, you're bad. And, but you, we see these images and, oh, it's naked. Now my body's starting to react. I mean, the body has a natural reaction to sexualized, you know, content or images or stories. or And so I guess I just must be, I guess love doesn't go here. You know, it's just a sin and I'm a sinner and, and I, I guess I just made sin. So it was very painful to have a father who had leaky sexual energy. That's what I would call it. Uh, he just didn't know how to contain his sexual energy. And he had, you know, he got magazines from the store and he would look at them and hide them in his drawer. And then when I developed into my own sexuality where there was just obvious signs of, you know, female sensuality, he just reacted to that. And he didn't know how to contain what I think every father, this is like a milestone for every father who has to deal with his daughter who's coming into her sexual bloom or whatever, her sexual energy. And the father's role is to identify that, to acknowledge that, oh, that's happening, and to have the skills to contain that. Well, who's teaching fathers that? Who's teaching boys that? So by the time they get to be men and married and have children, they will know how. Nobody's teaching that that I know of. We're just handing them pornography and telling them it's normal. So these are somebody's daughters. And it's just so confusing, I think. There's just so much work to be done around what I call sexual competence or sexual skill, sexual, um, yeah, just just basic sexual skills to be uh, responsible (laughs) with one's sexuality. And it's so challenging even for me to talk about that without feeling like I'm aligning with this camp is like morality and sex is the same you know it's like no it's just if you're driving your car you don't drive in that lane you drive in your own lane uh 
great. Yeah, I'm fascinated just listening to you because I agree. Like, not only do men not learn, I mean, boys don't learn those boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. About, I mean, it's a skill set to be able to do that, right? But women don't learn it either. I mean, you know, I don't think there's anyone teaching women, you know, about what that skill set looks like or how to even handle it for our own selves, our Mm -hmm. own bodies, Mm -hmm. let alone when other women develop, Mm -hmm. you know, because I think a lot of my experience growing up was most of the bullying around that Mm -hmm. came from other women, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. so how do we as women support each other through that process, Mm -hmm. you know, and then as mothers with children, Mm -hmm. how do we support our daughters through Mm -hmm. that process and Mm -hmm. teach our sons and Mm -hmm. different things like that, like when are you going to do that? Sexual competence. When are you going to design that curriculum? You know, thank you for asking. I actually, there is something in the works for me around, I I had a program that I was envisioning called Sober Sex, but then I realized it's not just for people who have addictions. Like, so even the word sober sex is, is too much in the addictions field. And so I'm working on a curriculum called Sexual Integrity. And it's basically just basic sexual integrity skills about staying in your own lane so to speak and what does that mean and I love that you brought women into it because women are encouraged to be like the women in the magazines uh, and the television now or the you know where it and if you you know having I mean this is talked about some I'm reading this amazing book by Peggy Ornstein at I don't know if you've read it. It's called Girls and Sex. I haven't. It's an incredible book, and it's, it's writing about basically the, the experience. I mean, it's a certain demographic. It's young uh, women who are from middle-class families about to go to college. It's kind of her main demographic, so it's limited in that way. But still, she's talking about the pressures that these young women face, which is amazing to me because I didn't face all of those pressures that they're facing to the same extent. And so I feel like, wow, I mean, if I was facing all those pressures at that younger age, I mean, it kind of hit me in college where the peer pressure started and some of the shaming for being a virgin. But I was somewhat protected and isolated when I was in earlier, my earlier than that. But these young women are subject to so much pressure to be um, sexualized. And then the only people that are telling them they shouldn't are like, don't do that, it's a sin. You know, so putting their sexuality down. And it's like... I don't know what's going to happen there. You know, I feel scared. I really do. I, in part, I'm like, well, I want people to read my book as a warning. Like, don't go this, don't go this route, you know. Um, But I also, I also so much want to create something to appeal to women's genuine sense of integrity and adventure and sensuality and celebrating the sexuality in all of its continuum from one end, which is this amazing, sacred, ecstatic, to the other end, which is really, I call it mammalian and lusty and raw and fabulous, like all of that. But where, where does, where does your lane stop and someone else's lane begin? And that to me is the question of seduction. And I think that we need to look at the integrity of seduction to not in, in where it's non-consenting or very low consenting seduction. I, I think that needs to be talked about in, in what I would want to call, you know, the neo-feminism it's not about suppressing women's sexuality, but it is about being, being in integrity with works from within and also not perpetrating with our sexuality, not bullying, not getting into the competition. And it's, I believe it's possible for women to have dialogues about a non-perpetrative sexuality that's not oppressing who they are. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, I learned those boundaries through sexual recovery, just like you did. Right. You get it. You know, so we went to the extreme. 
you know, we had to be sex addicts. And we go to the extreme. And we go, like, God, I've got to join this 12-step recovery. <laughs> we think it's the worst thing that's ever happened to us. And it turns out to be the best, best thing that ever thing happened that ever to us. Happens to us. <laughs> because someone's teaching us boundaries. Right. And, for, you know, for me, it was men. Men were teaching me boundaries. They weren't teaching me which ones I should have. But they were empowering me to have them. Because there weren't really women in sexual recovery in, in my area when I started. So whoever teaches you that you get to have boundaries, you're worth it. But as good citizens, good sexual citizens, like, we also have a responsibility to have healthy sexual boundaries just in the world. And, and as role models to the girls who are coming after us, what are, what are we introducing as role models for them? That's exciting. I'm really excited to learn about your curriculum and seriously would love to help and do whatever I could. I really hope that you're finding listening to Stacy as interesting as I did when I sat and spent some time with her and also even just re-listening to this interview. I I have found that I relate so much to some of the things that she says and I'm really excited about the direction that she's headed and the things that she's doing. I hope that you found some some value and some help in what she had to say and, and the time that we spent together. That's all the time we have today, though. (laughs) I had to divide that up. We'll have another episode with the conclusion of our interview, and you'll be able to hear a little bit more about Stacy's story and some of the things, some of the great things that she's doing. As always, ladies, I want you to remember that no matter how far you've gone, no matter where you feel right now in this very moment, that you are worth recovery, 100% worth it. And that there is hope for a brighter future. There is hope for the connection that you seek. There is hope for the relationship that you desire. And there is hope for healing in all of this crazy thing that we call addiction. Ladies, I want you to remember also that I think about you, I pray for you, and I love you. I hope that you have a great day. Until next time, Amy. of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.